Okay, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Dan Hamilton. I direct the Global Europe Program at the Wilson Center. And we're very delighted to welcome everyone today to a discussion on uh, North American European responses to the crisis in Belarus. Uh, we have uh, a great lineup and a hopefully stimulating conversation for everyone that will include uh, the audience. Uh, there's quite a crowd out there, as I understand. So I want to thank everyone for spending uh, their morning with us here on this topic. Uh, we're cooperating to get today within the Wilson Center with the Kennan Institute and the Canada Institute, and our colleagues are also on the line. What we'll do is ask each of our three speakers, I'll introduce them and then uh, ask them to speak briefly, uh, and then a, a basic uh, option for them to comment on each other's comments, uh, and then we will turn to audience uh, questions and answers. Uh, I'm going to turn to my colleague Jacqueline Orr, who uh, will tell you in the audience how you can uh, participate with your question and comment. So please, Jacqueline. Hello. Um, if you want to submit any questions today, please find us on Twitter at Kennan Institute um, or at Canada Institute. Um, you can also email us at ki at wilsoncenter.org uh, or Canada at wilsoncenter.org. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. So um, today we're talking about the crisis in Belarus. Uh, the people on the call are probably aware Belarus had uh, its latest election on August 9th, which uh, according to the regime extended Alexander Lukashenko's uh, presidency for another five years. He's been president for 26 years already. Uh, but uh, that election was contested with mass protests uh, erupting, taking place daily against Lukashenko. Uh, his opponent uh, left the country and many Belarusians are calling uh, the election fraudulent. Uh, the European Union, uh, Canada, the UK, the United States have called the elections illegitimate. Uh, the EU, Canada, the UK, they've taken a further step to impose sanctions on the country. Uh, while Russia is supporting uh, Lukashenko. And so the question is, uh, what is the international response um, so far? What could it be as things develop? How might those things develop in the country? And uh, the impact of sanctions, um, how do democratic countries address the issue of election fraud in a country like Belarus? And how do we manage relations with Russia in this uh, same uh, context. So uh, we're really delighted to have uh, three speakers uh, with us who are uh, quite uh, engaged and, and uh, involved in the conversation. Let me just briefly introduce them. Uh, first, uh, Radek Sikorsky is a member of the European Parliament currently. He heads the European Parliament delegation for relations with the United States. Uh, he was the marshal of the Polish parliament, the SEM, sort of like the president of the parliament. Um, he has been both uh, minister of foreign affairs and minister of defense uh, in Poland. He spent a good number of years in Washington and is very familiar with the Washington scene. Uh, and it's a real pleasure to have him uh, join us today. Uh, uh, Ken Wall uh, Yalowitz, Ambassador Yalowitz, uh, was a foreign, retired foreign service officer, a career foreign service officer who was twice ambassador in Belarus. Uh, and he was also ambassador in Georgia. And Ken, it might be interesting any of your thoughts you have on any parallels that you see or, or distinctions between 
issues in those countries. Uh, uh, Ambassador Yalowitz served in Moscow uh, two times. He served in the Netherlands in the U.S. mission to NATO. Uh, he has uh, been at uh, many different universities in the United States, Dartmouth, Georgetown, Stanford, Washington, Lee. Ken and I both served with uh, a great colleague, Robert Frazier. Bob Frazier was involved in the Dayton Peace Agreements for Bosnia. Uh, it's the 25th anniversary of those agreements next month. Uh, he was killed in his mission. Uh, and in his honor, there is a, uh, there are awards in his name for peacekeeping and conflict uh, prevention. And I'm, um, it's delight, I'm delighted to say Ken Yalowitz was awarded the Ambassador Robert Frazier Award for Peacekeeping Conflict Prevention for his work about spill, preventing spillover of the Chechen War into Georgia. And then we have Joel Sikorsky. Dr. Sikorsky uh, is taught at the Canadian uh, Study Center at SICE, where a number of us are involved at Johns Hopkins. Um, and he is uh, uh, also at different other universities in Canada, Dalhousie and Duke University. Uh, he's been a visiting Canada Fulbright Scholar at Bridgewater State and served as a number, uh, as a consultant number of government offices in Canada, including the Associate Assistant Deputy Minister of National Defense and the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade. He's been engaged in NATO Partnership for Peace issues and uh, with academic studies and is focused also on uh, Belarus. So uh, as I said, we're going to ask our speakers to uh, give us some introductory remarks and then offer some opportunity for them to comment on each other and then turn to audience. Uh, we have, uh, I'm just checking on Radek, uh, who I, I just have a note from his assistant about some connection problem he's having. So, so while we try to help maybe with that, I'm going to just uh, not to delay us if I could uh, turn to Ambassador Yalowitz to lead us off, and then we will uh, integrate Radek into the conversation as soon as he can come online. So please, Ken. Thank you very much, Dan, and uh, thank you very much to the Wilson Center and all the institutes within uh, that are doing this important program. And it's also a pleasure to be part of this very, very distinguished uh, panel. Um, I was uh, the U.S. ambassador to Belarus from 1994 to 1997, and uh, those were the years that um, you know Lukashenko had just been elected when I arrived. And uh, what I witnessed in my three years there uh, was his transformation uh, of Belarus basically into an authoritarian uh, dictatorship. Uh, using all the methods, you know, that uh, were common uh, when the uh, Soviets basically uh, took power in Eastern Europe, uh, getting rid of the old parliament, uh, restrictions on the press, getting rid of the opposition. Uh, I think you know, most people are quite familiar uh, with, with what that uh, entailed. And as a result of that, uh, in 1997, the U.S. moved to a policy of what, what we call selective engagement uh, with Belarus. And that meant that uh, we tried to do as much as possible at the locales with local government, uh, non-government uh, non organizations such as they were, and to limit, you know, to the essentials, you know, dealing with uh, the government uh, of Belarus. That really 
sort of laid the foundation for what the relationship, you know, has been uh, up until uh, recently. Uh, in 2006, um, there was a fraudulent presidential election like all the, the preceding elections. And uh, the United States put a number of sanctions, you know, on Lukashenko uh, as a result of that. We also saw at that point, and I had seen when I was there already, uh, a willingness, you know, to use force very extensively against uh, demonstrations, uh, opposition demonstrations, and uh, selective disappearances of political opponents. Uh, so, you know, Mr. Lukashenko's use of violence, you know, has a fairly long uh, history. Um, things pretty much stayed the same uh, till 2008. And then Mr. Lukashenko in retaliation uh, downgraded the, re the relationship. He, uh, you know, called uh, his ambassador back uh, from the United States and the United States did the same. So from 2008 until the present day, we have not had, you know, an ambassador uh, in uh, Belarus and the same, you know, with Belarus. A significant change uh, happened as a result of the Russian hostilities, initiation of hostilities in Ukraine. To make a long story short, uh, I think Lukashenko was very much concerned that something similar, uh, you know, could happen in Belarus. And uh, there was a bit of an easing up. He released political prisoners. Uh, there were some sanctions lifted, you know, by all the countries concerned that we're talking about today. And there was an, a, some of, somewhat of an official dialogue resumed. And a colleague has referred to Lukashenko in this period as taking on uh, an Ataturk, uh, you know, kind of, of situation. In other words, uh, he was portraying himself as the father of his country, whereas before, you know, he had really focused a great deal on a very close and very intense uh, relationship uh, with Russia. And post uh, 2015, we also saw the beginning of some very uh, significant disputes between Russia uh, and Belarus on commercial issues, on visas, uh, on this idea of creating one state. Uh, the Russians wanted an air base. Uh, and in addition to that, there were uh, disputes over the Russian supply of cheap oil uh, to Belarus. And Belarus has relied on that very extensively you know, to re-export uh, refined product uh, as a, uh, a major export earner. Uh, and what this really you know, showed now uh, as Lukashenko you know, sort of was uh, uh, you know, balancing a little bit more to the West is Lukashenko has been a balancer you know, all of his time. Uh, he makes no secret of his desire for the close ties with Russia. But he also likes to keep the ties, to keep the doors open to the West when the Russians put pressure on him. With us, the, uh, the situation changed rather significantly about uh, a year ago. Uh, the then National Security Advisor John Bolton visited Belarus and Secretary of State Pompeo visited Belarus uh, earlier this year. And I think it's probably fair to say that we were very interested in improving the relationship uh, because of these changes in, in Lukashenko's position. And I think part of the broader uh, situation where uh, Belarus took on more importance 
as the US looked at Russia and China as strategic uh, competitors. And during the um, uh, uh, Pompeo visit, uh, we talked about, uh, for the first time, we designated an ambassador again and talked more about you know, the improvement of relationships. But still those issues of human rights violations, democracy, you know, were still uh, very much uh, at, the, at the fore. Um, of course, Dan, you mentioned the events you know, that have led to the current crisis. And uh, I think I would have to say that you know, what I've seen of Mr. Lukashenko, nothing surprises me based on you know, my three years uh, of dealing with him. Uh, the United States uh, has declared that he is no longer the uh, elected president of Belarus, uh, even though he was sworn in secretly, you know, for a, a you know, for another term. Um, we have also uh, raised the sanctions and very similar now to what uh, our allies are doing. Uh, and I, I just want to just mention a couple of other things. Um, our Deputy Secretary of State, Steve Began, who has you know, spoken you know, a fair amount uh, about this crisis, has pointed out you know, that, that we view what's going on there as basically an internal issue. Uh, I don't think we want to see this as a US or Western Russia you know, competition uh, over, over Belarus. Uh, we recognize you know, that Russia does have significant influence in Belarus. And according to what Began said, you know, we are not really in a competition, um, you know, with uh, with Russia. At the same time, we have pointed out, you know, that uh, Lukashenko, you know, is basically uh, uh, illegal in terms of where he is. Uh, we think that the Russians are probably tired of him as well, and I think that's probably correct. But there is no alternative, you know, to him. Uh, you know, right now. And as Dan mentioned, uh, Russia, you know, has come to his uh, support. Uh, my own sense of where this is going is that uh, Lukashenko, and we have, we have not mentioned yet October 25th, uh, that's the date when the opposition has set a deadline uh, for Lukashenko to leave office. Otherwise, there's going to be a massive general strike and Lukashenko has already uh, authorized his uh, security people, you know, to use force. And the bottom line to me is that, um, you know, Lukashenko, uh, as long as these security forces, you know, stay loyal to him, uh, he may well, you know, stick it out. And I look at uh, Venezuela and I look at um, uh, Iran as, as areas where, you know, authoritarian governments have stuck it out, even though they're significant uh, popular, you know, manifestations. And my guess, you know, is that uh, he may survive this uh, in a very weakened condition and much more beholden, uh, you know, to, to Russia. So the bottom line is, you know, we have had a very difficult relationship with him over the years. Uh, but I think there's a sense also that there is not a great deal uh, that outsiders can do. Uh, and as I said, Began indicated that this is an internal issue. And uh, so as I say, I think there, there, there are you know, rather finite limits on what the outside world can do in dealing with Mr. Lukashenko. Thank you, Ken. 
Uh, just to keep our audience updated, uh, Roddick Sikorsky is just having uh, connection problems. He's working furiously to join us, and we're we're working in the background to help that. But we're going to continue the conversation. Uh, I'm just going to turn to Joel now to add a perspective from Canada, please, Joel. Well, um, I mean, the perspective uh, from Canada is, as you know, uh, Canada's uh, joined with the UK and others in imposing sanctions. Um, the more immediate, I think, uh, uh, concern is what happens if this doesn't uh, settle down, um, if uh, uh, Lukashenko cannot get a hold of uh, unrest in uh, Belarus, and for some reason or another, the, the Russians who would prefer not to um, intervene. And this poses a threat to uh, a new situation for NATO. And, uh, and my view is that this is, uh, this is where uh, the more uh, concerns for Canada become a little closer than they would otherwise. This is another country which is having internal, internal problems. And this is uh, simply because, as you know, um, since uh, 2014, um, Canada has been um, <clears throat> participating in NATO's, in NATO's Opry Assurance, and especially in the enhanced forward presence, uh, particularly uh, in, uh, in Latvia, where it's the framework nation and has uh, uh, a large number of forces and including a new, uh, a new headquarters. Uh, and so this puts, in some sense, if there's if things uh, do not settle down, this would put Canada, NATO in general, but Canada in particular on the front line of uh, any, uh, uh, any difficulties that would arise uh, should uh, Russian forces either overtly or covertly start moving, uh, start moving into, into, uh, into, into Belarus. Uh, and then in, in, that, in that sense, uh, along with other uh, enhanced forward presence countries, um, uh, uh, Canada and NATO allies might consider uh, some sort of reinforcement as a signal uh, to Russia that the um, uh, uh, that NATO is serious about protecting the sovereignty of those of those countries uh, with Russian forces uh, moving into Belarus. It would create a a new a new situation. So uh, I don't think that as things stand now, uh, beyond the sanctions, there's not much as uh, Canada and other allies can do, um, but should the situation uh, escalate uh, because of uh, unrest in, in Belarus that the government can control um, and Russia have uh, decide to move in, um, then uh, it would call for some sort of NATO reaction. And that reaction would in the first instance be some sort of reinforcement of the existing forward uh, enhanced forward presence position uh, in the Baltic states and perhaps uh, and perhaps into, into Poland, um, just to reassure those countries and to, uh, and to show that the, uh, that the NATO alliance is, uh, is serious about, protect, about protecting their sovereignty. Right now, this is an, a major issue on, on the political, uh, political agenda here, um, but it could escalate uh, if in fact the government is asked uh, to reinforce the position uh, in the Baltics along with other NATO countries. And I think that's the main concern. Having uh, Belarus as a authoritarian state, that's not a problem uh, in the long run. And I agree with the ambassador that uh, there's not much that, that anyone can do, can do about it. 
the main concern is if it doesn't settle down, uh, then NATO has to do something. And suddenly uh, Canada, who, uh, who's sort of making up for its laggard in defense spending by deploying troops forward, uh, would be asked to do, might be asked to do a little more. In any case, the government would have decisions to make about what those forces, how those forces might react. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. So I'm delighted now we finally got uh, Radek Sikorsky to join us. Radek, thank you again for your patience and struggles uh, to be with us. Uh, I'm going to turn to you, but just since you uh, just jumped in, I think you caught the last part of the conversation. Basically, the question is really what can the international community do? Um, both Ambassador Yalowitz and uh, Dr. Sikorsky said uh, there's little generally that could be done, but I, I wonder about that. I mean, the parliament uh, and a number of EU countries and the EU itself have, you know, uh, tried to go forward with more aggressive sanctions. I think both in Poland and the Baltic states, there's even greater pressure uh, to do some things. You're also the home now for some of the opposition um, uh, folks. Uh, there has been a debate about NATO, but uh, you know, I think NATO, frankly, has been trying to downplay any role it has here, so it's not used as an excuse by Putin or Lukashenko to do anything drastic. So I'm not sure that the NATO thing is really in the front lines. Maybe it is in terms of how things will develop, but I wonder what you think about that as well. So. Is there really little that can be done? What has been done on the European side that maybe North American colleagues aren't as aware about? And what's your suggestions for how we could uh, continue to manage and uh, deal with this? Please, to you. Thank you, Radek. Hello, and um, regards from the depths of Polish countryside. Um, the, the, the work of the European Parliament continues, but we work remotely. And it was remotely uh, that yesterday, uh, we um, awarded the Sakharov Prize for the freedom of thought to the democratic opposition in Belarus. Uh, we have also, uh, as the European Parliament, adopted a report entitled Recommendations to the Council, which is the, the, the member states, the prime ministers. Um, uh, the Commission and the High Representative oral, on relations with Belarus. Uh, this went through by 602 votes uh, in favor as opposed to 44 against. And it calls for the EU to, to uh, review its relations with Belarus, um, calls on for the establishment of a high level mission, calls for new elections, calls for sanctions on Lukashenko, calls for uh, negotiations of the EU-Belarus partnership priorities to be suspended, uh, recognizes Tihanowska as the uh, and the Coordination Council as a legitimate representative of the people, and calls for financial support for free Belarus media that operate in Poland. Um, we have also adopted a Parliament resolution on the 17th of September which supports the decision by the EU and its member states not to recognize the fraudulent res election result. Uh, we underlined in it that Lukashenko will not be the legitimate president of the country. And we supported the people of Belarus in their legitimate demands. 
uh, I could go on, but let me pass on to uh, our attempt to, um, for the EU to establish a Magnitsky Act, and you know what that is, so that we could um, pass these uh, targeted sanctions in this case, but also in other cases. Uh, Svetlana Tikhanovska participated in our Committee on Foreign Affairs, um, uh, once remotely and once in person. Uh, and we've done things together with the US Congress, um, uh, following a bipartisan initiative from uh, the Congress, we signed a, a joint letter uh, on Belarus. And immediately after the elections, um, myself and uh, Jim Costa uh, and others, um, we released a joint statement um, by the Transatlantic Legislators Dialogue on presidential elections in Belarus. I have also personally been active. I, I, I became a godparent of a political prisoner, um, uh, Sergei Tikhanovsky, the, the, the one who was supposed to be the original candidate before being imprisoned. And uh, I've submitted those amendments to the report on Belarus that call on the help with financing uh, Poland-based uh, radio stations uh, and, and TV. And remember that the synchronization of the uh, rallies is also done from, from Poland. And I've also raised uh, with the commission the recent incidents, um, such as the American company Sandvine providing software that is used for filtering internet uh, that has been used by Lukashenko to find his opponents among internet users in Belarus. And also uh, uh, the provision uh, of um, EU funded surveillance drones to Belarus. There was supposed to be uh, help in policing the border, uh, you know, preventing illegal migration, but, uh, but Lukashenko has misused it um, to control the civilian pop population. And we are planning an event uh, on the Magnitsky Act um, in November with uh, Petras Ostrevichus and the participation of Bill Browder to, to, to move the, the issue along. I agree with you that we should not play into Lukashenko's hand in portraying this as a Western and Polish plot. Uh, and I further fear that we don't have much influence, that this thing will resolve itself um, with the external parameters imposed by Vladimir Putin, because he will not allow Belarus to slip out of his control, because Belarus is seen by the Russians as even more vital um, territorially, geostrategically than Ukraine. Um, it's their promontory to the Kaliningrad Oblast, and, uh, and, and, and as they see it, as the gateway to the uh, to the air uh, uh, corridor towards Moscow. Uh, and as you know, the militaries are uh, integrated, uh, so any kind of solution will have to respect, and should actually uh, respect Russia's red line. Um, and the question in my mind is um, whether Putin can 
envisage a, a, a transition to someone else rather than Lukashenko. My hunch would be that Lukash a weakened and more pliable Lukashenko is actually more to his liking. Um, uh, his second best solution would be to have someone from inside the Belarusian nomenclatura who would be even more pro-Russian than Lukashenko. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. A number of things of interest there, I think in particular, uh, for those who don't know the Magnitsky Act, the basic premise of that type of uh, legislation is uh, personal sanctions, right? To go after individuals that are particularly involved um, here at the US has that. I wonder, uh, just a question back to our group, um, you know, about this notion that you can't do a whole lot, but you could ratchet it up uh, with more personal sanctions along the lines that Roddick is just saying. And I wonder on the Canadian and US side, whether uh, that also strikes uh, a tone. Roddick, I was very interested in what you just, you sort of mentioned in passing, but uh, it's an interesting idea. You said that you were a godparent uh, um, to opposition leader. Uh, I'm not sure if that term is translates well in the US context, but uh, the idea that you sort of are the mentor or contact point or a someone who's watching out for uh, some uh, individual opposition leader, sort of a re reverse Magnitsky Act, if you will, that you also single out people, but in a positive way and also invest some political capital. I mean, that strikes me as a very interesting innovation that could be also extended to other colleagues. I just wonder whether are you the only one? Is what's behind all of that? Is that something other legislators and other democratic countries might also think about uh, doing? Because it strikes I'm me not as... the only one. It was the idea of a, a Belarusian human rights group. I can find you the name, and it involves also writing letters to Belarusian authorities. I wrote to the foreign minister, whom I know personally. Um, and it also means uh, keeping the, um, the, the, the awareness of the international community of the plight of the person that you are sponsoring uh, in one's uh, social media. So I have a million followers on Twitter. So, I, you know, you, 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 um, you post photographs of yourself with the name of the person on, on your Twitter and Facebook accounts, which I hope will help. It helped opposition figures back in the 70s and 80s when, when we needed that kind of support from the right. West. That sounds like an interesting idea that maybe it could be extended. And I just, the other question is about um, on sanctions, more on the financial side of things, uh, corruption, trying to shut down money flows. Um, is there more that could be done there? Do you think that um, sometimes, you know, the issue of the countries like this is what the West should be doing itself, so it's not enabling uh, others to take advantage of their positions of power. And I just wonder, to what extent do you believe Western institutions are sort of involved? You mentioned the companies that have provided uh, products, but uh, are banks and other types, of, are we being used as funnels and channels for, you know, that type of thing? And could we be doing something more in that area? Uh, to the, to uh, the best of my knowledge, Lukashenko keeps his family's money in Dubai. 
Uh, and of course, Magnitsky type sanctions will not affect him much because he does, unlike some Russian oligarchs, he doesn't keep his assets in Western Europe. Uh, and he's not planning a holiday in the French Riviera. Um, uh, but, um, but that's not to say that other dictators and uh, human rights abusers are not using our financial um, institutions to, uh, to, to, to abuse their citizens. And as you know, uh, there is roughly 50 trillion euros hidden away in tax havens. And some of these tax havens are not on exotic islands uh, in the Caribbean. They are in Delaware, Nevada, Luxembourg, and Cyprus uh, of untaxed, uh, sometimes stolen money. So, you know, we should sort this, up, this racket for the sake of the money that we need to fight the pandemic, uh, but also for the sake of, uh, of, of the citizens from countries from which the, the resources have been stolen. Right. Thank you. So let me ask both uh, Joel and Ken, maybe in that order, Joel and then Ken, uh, back on your, your comments on each other's uh, comments and what uh, uh, Mr. Sikorsky has said, uh, but particularly this idea of pressing you back on that there's not a whole lot we can do. I mean, uh, Radek has said a number of things that probably could be done more. Um, I wonder if any of those resonate with you. Or is, it, is it a different situation for the United States or Canada than uh, European colleagues? Uh, so what's your view on that? Uh, Joel, could you comment first, please? Uh, on the sanctions, <clears throat> the Canadian government has named specific individuals uh, that's imposing uh, uh, financial sanctions on uh, doing, doing business. Um, and I think this is something uh, uh, that it can do, although it's not clear how much business they actually do with Canadians or Canadian, Canadian entities. Um, so I, I think, you know, perhaps to rephrase it, there's a lot we can do, uh, but is there a lot we can do that's gonna change things? And you can do all sorts of things, but whether it profoundly changes uh, the situation, uh, the situation in, uh, in, Be in Belarus, uh, that's uh, that's another question. Are things different, uh, you know, in North America? There may be a tendency here that uh, even though Canada is participating, to say this is something that the Europeans should take or should take the lead in, which they're doing. Um, that uh, this primarily would concern them, uh, and uh, it would also um, uh, they 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 therefore should take the lead. Um, if, however, things don't work out and escalate, um, then I think it, it does become a NATO problem. Uh, and that, that, does make, that does make the difference. Uh, but for now, I think it's primar primarily the Europeans who have the levers uh, uh, over this. But as a democracy, as a country interested in promoting democratic values, as a country that's been involved in promoting them, for example, in Ukraine uh, and in the Bal and in in, uh, in the Balt the Baltic countries, uh, Canada is naturally concerned whenever there's some sort of retreat or threat uh, or threat to democracy. So, from a value standpoint, yes, you want to be engaged. From a from a standpoint of uh, of uh, of economic or security issues, um, it's not it's not a high it's not a high priority uh, at uh, at the moment. It certainly has not caught public attention, which is preoccupied with domestic matters. Uh, domestic matters here. 
Thank you. you. Uh, Ken, before I turn to you, let me just remind, we're gonna turn to questions after this. So uh, remind the audience, uh, you can send in questions uh, on Twitter to uh, ki at wilsoncenter.org. I guess that, uh, the, and, uh, and, and uh, Canada at wilsoncenter.org on the email or on Twitter. You can find them also as Jacqueline had said. So uh, Ken, can you uh, round out that this round, please? You're on mute, Ken. You're on mute, yeah. Okay. Okay, thank you very much. Um, the first thing I would say um, is that, uh, you know, the Russians are carrying a number of economic burdens, you know, right now. The costs of Crimea, Eastern Ukraine, uh, and a, there are a number of their overseas adventures. But um, I don't think, uh, you know, what, what they would might have to do in Belarus to prop up Lukashenko, you know, is going to break them financially. I think we've seen uh, with what the U.S. has done with Iran, uh, and even with Venezuela, that it's very, very hard to uh, break the will, uh, you know, of an authoritarian government, you know, simply using, uh, you know, economic sanctions. Um, another point I wanted to make on NATO, um, I think the Russians recognize very clearly uh, that the opposition uh, demonstrations are not pro-NATO, they're not pro-European Union, they're pro-democracy, they're not anti-Russian. And I think the Russians recognize that and they will probably do not want to use military force because that would change the dynamic. Uh, it would probably force uh, you know, the demonstrators you know, to look to uh, NATO uh, and the West. Um, Another factor uh, that I wanted, you know, to mention uh, is, uh, you know, that in the United States, we are obviously now preoccupied with our election, you know, 10 days off. Uh, a great deal of attention is being given to the struggle in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, we have a very large Armenian-American community, which is very concerned about it. Uh, and the Secretary of State is having both foreign ministers, Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, in the United States very, very shortly. Um, so as a practical matter, uh, I think it's going to be hard to focus, uh, you know, the American Congress, you know, on Belarus. We've already upped the sanctions, as I said earlier. Uh, and in addition to all the things, you know, that uh, Minister Sikorsky mentioned, you know, the, the, um, uh, the resolutions, all of those things, all of those are very, very, very important. Uh, but again, I don't think they're going to, you know, change the, uh, you know, the situation on the ground. And if uh, uh, Minister Sikorsky is still there, I would like to just pose to him the following question. Uh, I've heard people say that the uh, mass demonstrations, you know, in, in Belarus, which I never would have expected, you know, when I was there as ambassador. Obviously, there's a whole group now of intellectuals, of, of uh, computer, you know, geniuses, uh, you know, uh, software people, uh, you know, in Belarus that are really forming the essence of this opposition movement. And someone said to me that the answer with Belarus may be watching what happened with solidarity, you know, in Poland. 
that the society is changing very significantly and that over time, you know, Lukashenko is doomed. And, and I tend to agree with that. I think that, you know, his, the clock is ticking on him uh, and that, you know, he may stay in power, you know, a bit longer because of the Russians propping him up. But if the demonstrators in Belarus, you know, continue what they're doing, uh, that it may be a situation, you know, like Solidarność. And I would really love to ask Minister Sikorsky on, uh, on his view of that. Okay, Ken got in the first question. So uh, why don't we uh, uh, turn to Radek, if you uh, can, uh, to just ask that uh, question directly, pose, uh, answer it directly. Well, let's remember what happened with Solidarity in the 1980s. In 1980, there was the strike in the Lenin shipyard which uh, the authorities didn't like, but didn't attack and made a provisional deal for an independent union to be created. And there was a sort of stalemate for 18 months after which the, uh, the authorities cracked down by imposing martial law in December, 1981 and uh, jailing. Uh, um, about 5,000 opposition figures and um, interning uh, Lech Wałęsa. And for about eight years, it looked like they won. Uh, and after eight years, communism collapsed. But it collapsed because the external parameters changed. What changed in the meantime was that Gorbachev came to power in, in the Soviet Union. And when Jaruzelski was joining the roundtable conversation with the illegal solidarity movement, he knew that uh, A, he had Gorbachev's uh, permission to do that, and B, Polish communists uh, were seeing the writing on the wall and they were uh, preempting events by making an internal deal. And, and as a result, Poland had a non-communist government in um, August 1989, when the Berlin Wall was still standing. Uh, and that led to uh, other developments in the region. Um, I mean, one hopes that the Belarusian opposition will be able to reclaim this stolen election sooner than that. But there are some parallels, namely, uh, uh, Polish society in the 1970s was politically dormant. Uh, the secret police had a list of um, active opposition figures and it was a list about, of about 150 people. And then, and that's, that ended, you know, the experience of joining a movement which at its height had 10 million people, members. A and then that movement being suppressed, politicized the whole generation of people which 10 years later gave us uh, the result that it did. So yes, it's possible that that's how it will unfold, but remember the external um, constraint. Uh, so I don't think it changes my view that Russia has a lot of influence in Belarus. It's, it's 300 years of history, its language, its joint efforts in the Second World War, its uh, Russian culture is predominant in Belarus and so on. Um, Europe also is attractive. If, you know, hundreds of thousands of Belarusians work in the European Union and they see us as a, an attractive model. 
Um, uh, but I think that um, events in Russia will will have uh, a lot to do what, uh, with what is uh, what may happen in, in Minsk. Thank you. Okay, so uh, we do have some questions from our, uh, our vast audience out there, uh, and let me uh, turn to uh, that. But I'm going to ask my colleague Chris Sands uh, from the Wilson Center, directs the Canada program to start us. Uh, Chris? Um, thank, thanks very much, Dan. I, I wanted to ask a question, uh, maybe initially to ask Joel Sokolsky, but uh, anyone could answer it. Um, I wonder what you think about economic pressure uh, in order to move change in Belarus and two things in particular. Um, on the first instance, the IMF has a you know, COVID response fund. They suspended uh, a $900 million grant in September for Belarus because of non-transparency. Um, but Belarus is definitely uh, trying to get more money. Uh, they have IMF access, but they're also stuck in a long WTO accession process. I, I wonder if um, if either of those levers, where Canada's influential in both the IMF and, and at the WTO level, uh, could be useful in pushing for change and further pressuring Lukashenko at this time. Joel, that's directed directly to you. You uh, have to unmute and then uh, the others want to so say something. I think the, those levers are, uh, are um, could be effective, but only if they're done, if they, the app, their application has support. The the IMF and to do that would need the support of the ma major contributors. So uh, if you're asking what Canada can do, it might take the lead in asking these organizations, but it has to make sure before it does that, it already is going to get support for it. So I so it's you know this is the way you operate before you make a suggestion like that. Make sure it's going to get a a positive response. Among your uh, among among your among your colleagues, um, uh, I think it it uh, it depends on how important it is to for the Lukashenko regime to maintain power um, as an authoritarian government. The welfare of its people may not be its top priority, uh, and this all always undermines economic economic sanctions because the leaders will still do okay, um, and uh, also just. Bearing in mind what my colleagues have said, if the IMF and uh, you know the and through the WTO uh, begin this uh, this pressure, then doesn't it look again to Russia to Moscow that this is the West interfering again? Uh, because these, as as universal as these organizations are, they're still primarily controlled by the West by the Western countries, and so it's just another way of uh, of uh, uh, extracting. Uh, concessions from a government um, on the part uh, on the on the part on the part of the of the West uh, and uh, if you look at other areas with uh, in the world uh, as as effective as these could be uh, to a government where its top priority is staying in power uh, the issues of accession to the WTO and even COVID are not going to be the top priority and I think um, Knowing or suspecting that uh, that uh, uh, diplomats and government in Canada are both cautious of getting too far ahead, they're going to wait to see who else would support that first, or even before uh, they might take that initiative. So uh, let me uh, turn to our other panelists, but let me weave in a couple other questions that have come up so we can uh, address those. And feel free to address as you like. There's a uh, 
before Radek joined, Ken was mentioning, I believe, the October 25th deadline, or Joel might have mentioned that, that the opposition has set. And one of our questions also says, the, formally, the fifth term of Lukashenko's presidency ends on November 5th. So you have both of these dates looming. Uh, and the question is, you know, what impact might that have on the international response uh, going forward? The related question that has come in is saying that the EU sanctions imposed on Belarus don't seem to be having much of an effect and the violence is continuing. Lukashenko is not showing signs of stepping down. And so the question is, will individual EU states like Poland impose sanctions on their own if the situation continues? Or will Poland try to, and maybe if Rada can say anything about the Baltic states, Lithuania in particular, uh, would they continue to you know, urge the EU track to be their main track? Or do you see a different sort of sanctions regime evolving with among EU uh, countries? Maybe turn to Radek first and then Ken for any words. I don't see what the opposition can do come 4th of November other than what they're doing. So. Uh, I mean, I wish them luck, but uh, um, uh, I don't think so. Um, and as regards relations with uh, the European Union, you know, it's not as if Lukashenko hadn't stolen elections before. I remember going to Minsk with Guido Westerwelle, the foreign minister of Germany, with the support of the commission, and we verbally put 3 billion euros on the table if only he would steal the, the next election a little bit less flagrantly. And guess what? They, he did it anyway, and he jailed his, uh, his competitors. Um, so, you know, he's not regarded as legitimate to begin with. You know, he, even when Belarus is invited to important international meetings, it's usually not him. And I don't see what else we can do. I wouldn't count on sanctions by individual member states because the, 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 the ammo is not there. Um, but let me, let me strengthen what uh, has been said because you know, it's paradoxical that the West today is more instinctively Marxist than the East. Um, the basic paradigm in the West is that if governments find themselves in economic and financial difficulties, then they'll change behavior, base determining the superstructure. Well, that's not how politics is done in Russia and in Belarus. <laughs> you know, there's primacy of politics, Leninist, Kto Kavo, and, uh, and, and the, the, your first uh, um, uh, priority is, uh, is to stay in power. Because if you're the kind of leader who has murdered his political opponents, then your first concern is, whether you can hand on power uh, while maintaining immunity pr from prosecution. And that's very difficult to arrange. So once you're on that conveyor belt of, um, of breaking the law and ordering murders, you can't really get off it. And, and that's the dilemma. Um, and let me also uh, mention two other myths. One is people think that Belarus is poor. Actually, it is 50% wealthier per capita than Ukraine. This is not 
uh, the rebellion of impoverished people. And look at the crowds in Belarus. This is a rebellion of a middle class, which, is, which feels uh, already relatively comfortable and which is now demanding more, which is to say uh, political rights. And secondly, um, uh, the economics of it don't work the way you think. Um, Belarus has been able to attract huge Western investments. Um, Belarus is the size, has the population of a quarter of Ukraine, but has more Western investments, despite being a dictatorship. Let's face it, our business prefers stable, predictable dictatorship to freewheeling and corrupt democracy. Sorry to be negative. All right, uh, Ken, please. I would very much agree with uh, what has just been said. Uh, just a couple of other uh, points uh, on that. Um, first, um, you know, you know, with regard to uh, uh, Belarus, uh, you know, and Russia, uh, as I've said before, you know, the amount of money, you know, that uh, the Russians are going to have to spend, you know, what will keep him up. But don't lose sight of the fact that the Russians have probably penetrated Belarus very extensively, uh, you know, in terms of their military leadership, their security. Uh, and as uh, you know, Minister Sikorsky just said, uh, the security forces, you know, have a vested interest in the status quo. Uh, and they are not going to want to face, you know, popular tribunals, uh, you know, if this uh, regime, uh, you know, goes, uh, you know, goes down the, uh, down, down the tubes. So, uh, again, uh, I think the basic dynamic in Belarus right now is Lukashenko is playing for time. Uh, his thinking is that, uh, you know, that the popular uh, momentum will begin to uh, fade over time if there are no political, you know, results. If the West does not intervene, you know, directly, which I don't think it's, you know, going to do, uh, and I think it's a, it's a really a power calculation going on right now. Who is going to blink first? And I think that Lukashenko's, you know, calculation is is that you know he holds the upper hand. He's still he's a Stalinist. He understands, you know, how many divisions do they have and how many do I have, and he still has a lot more. So again, to conclude. I think he's going to survive this in a very weakened state. And I agree that the Russians prefer to have him because he'll be easier to deal with. Thank you, Ken. May I add a footnote? Yes, I can, agree. can I just, though, just to conclude, because I'm going to ask you a last question uh, and then we'll be done. Uh, there are questions also about the internal situation in the country. And the question is, do you think the special police forces, the military would eventually step aside and defect or remove their support and what about Belarus labeling the protesters as terrorists now? If you could just weave that in and then uh, what you wanted to say, and then we'll uh, have to conclude. Well, the last one, I don't know, but, uh, but authoritarian regimes are up to do that because then you can impose harsher penalties. Uh, revolutions usually occur when the regime can't pay its security forces. And Lukashenko clearly has been paying them and there is, he still commands their loyalty. And as long as 
uh, there have been some low level defections, but on the whole, I'm afraid uh, the security apparatus um, is on his side. Um, and the, the reason for that is that Lukashenko has purged the apparatus. In fact, uh, also from Russian influences. So this is very odd. The militaries are completely interlinked, but the internal security apparatus um, uh, is purged of Russian uh, uh, influences because that's the direction from which Lukashenko has feared a coup against himself. And lastly, the cost through Russia, remember, is mainly via the energy price. Um, uh, Belarus uses Russian gas for most of its energy needs and also to make fertilizer. Um, and it's getting a concessionary price, um, something in between uh, uh, Russian dom domestic price and, uh, and the market price in Europe. And, and it's through this mechanism that Russia has subsidized Belarus to the tune of many, many tens of thousands of billions of uh, euros over the last couple of decades. Uh, and clearly, uh, it thinks that it's been worth it. Thank you so much. Uh, Minister Radek Sikorsky, Ambassador Yelowitz, uh, Dr. Sikorsky, thank you so much for joining us. It was great. I find on the Zoom, we, we can't clap for you, but we, we can go like this. Uh, and so I want to uh, thank you all for joining us. And to all of my colleagues at the Wilson Center for putting this on, thank you again. And we hope to see you again in a future event. So thank you. Take thank care. Bye-bye.